There you go. Welcome to Independent Thought and Freedom. Issues surrounding race, immigration, nationalism, and identity have been at the forefront around the globe for the past few years. These are fed into radical political earthquakes that are reshaping the world, such as Brexit, the election of Donald Trump, the consolidation of the BJP in India, and with nationalist and anti-mass immigration parties around the world. This week, the United States observed the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the most famous figure in the civil rights struggle of the 1960s, and a virtual saint for many around the world. As with all saints, there have been mythologies built up around them. With respect to Dr. King and his struggles on behalf of African-American people, we need to delve more deeply into the facts and details surrounding Dr. King and his movement and the implications for ethnic, political, and social justice struggles today. This includes debates on who are the real racists, what did the civil rights movement achieve for Afri Afro-Americans, and other issues. To talk about this today, I have with me Dr. E. Michael Jones, author of The Slaughter of Cities and 61 other books. E. Michael Jones is an unusual, independent Catholic thinker. His interests and knowledge are incredibly wide-ranging, from history to economics to global politics to theology to sociology. He's extremely challenging, fearless, bold, committed, and controversial. I'm so glad to have him again on this podcast. Welcome, Dr. Jones. Thank you, Kurt. Good to be here. Yeah, great to have you here. Um, yeah, so let's start off with, um, it's Martin Luther King Day today as we record. Is that correct? It's a holiday? That's right. That's right. All right. All right. It's part yeah, of the, the, the. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Give me your views. I was going to say. Yes, well, it's part of the liturgical cycle now of uh, events, the secular religion in the United States. Actually, I was at mass today, and the the uh, the nun ends, but you know, with the litany of saints, and she ends by saying, "Saint Martin Luther King, pray for us." <laughs> <laughs> So at that point, everybody turned around and said, wait a minute, I didn't know he'd been canonized. <laughs> this, is, she, this is the de facto reality of the situation. If there's did, one did, state did she in say the that tongue in cheek? America, pardon me? Did she say that tongue in cheek or was You'll it? Have to ask her. I don't know. Maybe she was being ironic. I don't think so. But I mean, this is part of the reality of the United States of America. If there's one saint in that we have in this country, it's Martin Luther King. Yeah. So it's in in this regard, it's good to look into uh, exactly who he was and what he stood for. Yeah. Well, and, I'm, yeah. Go, go, go ahead. on. I, I was going to say. I mean, you've you've sort of touched uh, on this. I mean, no, you have touched on this in uh, Slaughter in the City, uh, Slaughter of the Cities, quite a bit. Um, and uh, I, I don't know if, if why don't you try, explain that a bit, and perhaps any other uh, issues you want right. to raise as well. Okay, the crucial year here is 1954. This uh, is known as the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement, but the Civil Rights Movement was caused by other events. Uh, and the thing that happened in 1954, the Supreme Court handed down two decisions. Uh, one was called Berman versus Parker, which uh, basically gave the state approval to urban renewal. Uh, basically, uh, this meant the state could come in and level your neighborhood and build high-rise buildings on it if they saw some higher social purpose. Social engineering was mentioned in Gunnar Myrdal's book, The American Dilemma, and The American Dilemma was about race. And the book was about how race is going to be the basis of social engineering in the United States of America. The other decision was Brown versus School Board, which basically said that segregation was illegal in the South. Segregation was the de facto system, social order in the South. Okay, both of those occurred in 1954. Um, what most people don't know is that Brown versus School Board was based on studies done by the American Jewish Committee. Uh, it was basically a Jewish science that was the basis of integration. Lots of studies about how uh, with uh, black boys and white boys and how they reacted to certain uh, things. This replaced what was de facto the system in America, what I would call the real system. And that was 19, came out in 1954 as well. There was a book called Protestant, Catholic and Jew 
by a rabbi. Uh, and the book was about the triple melting pot. And this book said that uh, the real basis of the social order or social organization in America was religion. And the triple melting pot said that no matter where you came from, after three generations in America, your ethnic group was based on your religion. So uh, America was a group that was based on three ethnic groups, based on three religions, Protestant, Catholic, Jew. What happened in 54 was that the real system of organization, namely ethnicity, was replaced by a new uh, social, uh, a new basis, namely race. And race then became the basis of social engineering in the United States of America. And that's what created the civil rights movement. If it weren't for these decisions, if it weren't for Jewish science uh, created by people like the American Jewish Committee, the authoritarian personality, all of these books, if it weren't for this, there would have been no civil rights movement. What was the civil rights movement? It was basically the Black Jewish Alliance. That's what it was. And this Black Jewish Alliance began long before that. It began in around 1915 uh, when a Jewish uh, pedophile by the name of Leo Frank was convicted and sentenced to death for the murder of a 13-year-old girl named Mary Fagan. At this point, uh, these Jewish organizations came into existence. The first one was the Anti-Defamation League which was created to keep Jewish criminals out of jail and control the narrative on the word Jew, largely through the term anti-Semitism. The other organization that came into existence at this time was the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. This was a Jewish organization. Uh, the man who understood this completely was Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey was a black nationalist leader who came from Jamaica, uh, uh, went to Harlem. Harlem was a center of Jamaican culture, black culture as well. And uh, Marcus Garvey went to the headquarters of the NAACP sometime during the 1920s. And he looked around. There were no black people at the organization, no colored people at the NAACP. It was all Jewish lawyers. It had been created by the Spingarn brothers, uh, prominent Jewish uh, 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 intellectuals, uh, publishers, uh, important people, lawyers in New York, uh, to mobilize the black people as revolutionaries uh, in the United States of America. What these organizations did during the 1920s was to try to create a slave rebellion. They had Haiti in mind, okay? Haiti was the paradigm. This was going to be imported to the United States of America, and they were looking for their Toussaint Louverture, here in, in America, they tried a number of uh, different things. And finally, all of these pieces came together in the 1950s with those Supreme Court decisions and the launching of the civil rights movement, which was basically a revolutionary movement uh, created by an alliance of blacks and Jews in the United States of America. All right. That, that's, that's a lot there that I'd like to unpack um, because there, there's so many issues you've touched upon. I, three major things that I, I want us to keep in mind, because uh, as we delve in, I'm sure we'll go into so many nooks and crannies. You know, the, the idea of segregation and racism, the, the equivalence of that, and I think it's a false equivalence, and Garveyism and so forth, the triple mel melting pot idea uh, with blacks, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and also that's tied into the ethnicity and race thing. Because I, I want to talk about the implications of brown people today and, and look at the creation of white people in the 50s and, and so forth. But let's start off with Marcus Garvey, who was actually, you know, in the Caribbean, he, he's a, a major figure. In Jamaica, he's a national hero. We have a statue of Marcus Garvey in San Fernando, uh, our second city here in, uh, in Trinidad, for example, right next uh, on the same promenade with uh, Gandhi. I think it's the only place in the world where, where you have that. Um, and it's, it, it's quite amazing that uh, people don't know about Garvey because he, he's a massive, massive figure in Afro-American history. He's the largest black organization in the world. Millions of people, over a million people. And, and, uh, and you, you know, by the way, do you know the UNIA, his organization, um, in the in the um, states, or 
around the world. Do you, do you know yeah. the organization? Yes, I know of it, yeah. Right. Do you know what the nickname that the NAACP, like W.E.B. Du Bois, and then used to call uh, the UNIA people? No, tell me. The ugliest Negroes in America. Right? <laughs> it, that is extremely important with the internal black politics because it's also politics of color, right? All the NAACP people like W.E. Du Bois, I mean, they look so European with their noses and his mustache and his three-piece suit and his ability to speak in Europe and he's a sociologist right. at the University of Chicago and so forth, whereas, uh, you know, Marcus Garvey was a big, round, black, dark, you know, big lip, nose, the right. features of, of uh, you know, black West Africa, Right. And, uh, and and spoke in that language and spoke to those people. And it, it was very much an internal class um, thing among black people. And later on, I mean, this this dichotomy never disappeared um, because the the heirs of Marcus Garvey would be like Malcolm X, the Nation of Islam, the black nationalists, as opposed to the um, anti-segregationists. Um, so I, I'd like you to, to perhaps uh, explore that, you know, segregation and racism, because it seem, it's, it's almost de rigueur now to think of segregation as being racist. Right. But, yeah, I don't agree with that. And, and black nationalists don't agree with it. I'd no. like to hear your take on that. No, no, you're, you're absolutely right. You, you, you touched on one of the fundamental issues in American politics, namely the conflict between the people and the oligarchs. It's to this day. I mean, we have a classic example now uh, of uh, the presidential candidate, Pete Buttigieg, who happens to be mayor of South Bend, Indiana, which happens to be where I live. And we grew up, he grew up on the street, uh, three houses down from me, okay? Uh, he went to Harvard. My son went to Harvard. My son got invited to the uh, Porcellian luncheon and then they ask you a question to see if you're going to be indict, in, inducted into the club. And it was, what do you think of Darwinism? And my son gave the wrong answer and Pete gave the right answer. And so he then went on to become uh, a, a Rhodes Scholar. And if you remember Cecil Rhodes, he yeah. created that scholarship to administer the Anglo-American empire. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what these people are. Pete Buttigieg. So, so what has changed during this period of time is that uh, back in the 50s, the Negro was the avant-garde of this Jewish-led revolution. What's now the case? That is now the homosexual. The homosexual is now the avant-garde of the revolutionary movement. And Pete Buttigieg is a representative of the oligarchic interest. He, he's, his, he's, he's got the greatest resume in the history of South Bend, Indiana. The only problem is uh, the people don't want to vote for him. You know, yeah. and this is the conflict. How do you, how do you get the people to vote for oligarchic interests? Well, you find a front man, and the front man in this uh, back with the NAACP was, as you mentioned, W. E. B. Du Bois or Dubois. Yeah. Okay. He was a Harvard. He went to Harvard too. Yeah. Okay. Like Pete, he went to Harvard. He was a, an educated Negro, and he was basically a front for Jewish interests. That's all he was. Mm -hmm. Garvey knew that. Uh, Garvey had a huge popular following. All you have to do is look at those parades that they had in Harlem yeah. and see that just enormous numbers of people there coming out in support of Garvey's and, organization. And, and, and let me expand on that because um, Garvey, it was a global movement in every country where black people existed. There was a branch of the UNIA all throughout Central America and every country in the Caribbean, in Africa itself. Every African independence anti-colonial leader from Jomo Kenyatta to Kwame Nkrumah was influenced directly by Marcus Garvey. The British, the, the two major publications that the British Empire banned um, that were considered the most dangerous was not only the communist newspapers, but Marcus Garvey's Negro World. It, it was, he was a danger to the British Empire. Because because he was promoting nationalism. That's right. This is the age of nationalism. 
This is uh, World War One was a war that was fought about nationalism. This yeah. was the uh, the ruins of basically Protestant Europe eventuated in nationalism. Okay, now uh, the NAACP did not like nationalism. That's right. The uh, Jews uh, believe that there is one group that should be uh, have its own identity, and that is the Jews. Everyone else has to become part of some other identity and that's known as integration yeah okay now as you pointed out america was based on a form of segregation both north and the south okay both the groups uh, that the the group that won the civil war and the group that lost the civil war in the south that segregation was based on race in the north that segregation was based on ethnicity so what you had was ethnic neighborhoods in every big city in the United States of America. And so you were, uh, uh, I grew up in an Irish neighborhood uh, as a, uh, an infant and child. And then when we were six years old, the blacks crossed Lehigh Avenue in North Philadelphia and everybody left. Now the standard explanation is called white flight. That's not the way we perceived it. This was ethnic cleansing. Yeah. And that was the book that I wrote. I'm the first guy to talk about urban renewal as ethnic cleansing. No one ever talked about it on those terms before. That's and I'm saying that the real dynamic of social engineering was religious as the triple melting pot. It was not racial. It looked racial because all of those people crossing Lehigh Avenue were all black and we were all white. But what do you mean by white? Yeah. Do you mean Irish? Well, we thought we were Irish until the black, uh, you're, you're, you're Irish until you're confronted with black people and then you become white. It's not an identity. It's a yeah. category of the mind. And when you look into it, which I did in the slaughter of cities, it turns out that there were white people behind this. We're talking about the Ford Foundation, John J. McCloy. These were very white people, but they were Protestants. Okay. You know and. And these Protestants would hire other Protestants, black Protestants like Leon Sullivan, to bring the black people up from the uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, and act as proxy warriors to drive the Catholics out of their neighborhoods. When those Irish Catholics left that neighborhood and they moved to the suburbs, they became white. Same thing with the Poles, the Italians, so on and so forth. You know, the... Um you know, because the Afro-American struggle was so important to um, Caribbean people, and in fact, many Caribbean people, you know, like Garvey, were were part of the African-American struggle. All the migration is a phenomenon they call the Black Atlantic, which is very um, a very important concept. The way black people, activists, workers, laborers moved between England, the states, the Caribbean, um, and, and so forth. Um, there's a lot of debate that is, I think, not known among the communists, which, I mean, the NWACP were, were very close to the communists and, you know, essentially, you know, you might consider it a communist front. But um, among the communists, uh, C.L.R. James, who was one of our great uh, intellectuals, was part of that debate. There, there was, the Communist Party had an idea of, let's say, in Russia, for example, that you had these nations like the Uzbeks, um, the Turkmen's, and uh, so forth, uh, and they they needed their own nations uh, within um, the Soviet Empire, if you want to put it that way, uh, Soviet nation. I don't think they called it an empire, but it's kind of, that that was emerging. That was coming out of the Austro-Hungarian um, the dissolution, and and the Marxists there were, were talking about that kind of stuff. So nationalism and communism, how to put it together. There was, uh, there's an amazing book by Jim Allen uh, called The Negro Question in America. And I think it's been renamed Negro Liberation. Um, and basically, he talks about the, Af the, the, the Negro nation, right? Using the terms of the time. The Negro nation in the United States, which was the official position of Stalin. Right, uh, and, and it was the Leninist position and then later Stalin, that there was a black nation. Uh, it was demonstrated geographically, statistically, where blacks are half of the population. And uh, then you have the outlying territory where they're 29% of the population. The capital is Atlanta. Um, and, and you have a black nation that the Communist Party was fighting for uh, as part of the struggle. Then you had 
other people like CLR James, uh, who said, no, this is ridiculous. There is no black nation. Um, you know, there, there's an American nation and, and blacks are, are integral to this American nation and, and so forth. And um, I remember a, a movie that I think HBO did on um, Martin Luther King, I don't know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, can't even remember the name. But uh, they had when Bayard Rustin visited Martin Luther King for the first time. A lot of people don't know him. He was uh, a, a homosexual communist, uh, you know, civil union rights leader. person. Sorry? Union leader. Yep, and a union leader. And, and how Martin Luther King just, wow, Bayard Rustin, where do you come here? And how they started this Southern Christian Leadership Con Conference. But there is this internal debate among the communists um, uh, about whether blacks were a nation or, or whether they shouldn't. Now, Zora Neale Hurston, the... Um, uh, are you familiar with Zora Neale sure. Hurston? Sure. Right. Yeah. She's amazing. And um, she had a strong critique uh, of, of the communists. And she said that one of their biggest tools to recruit uh, black men into, com into communism was to give them a white woman, a white Jewish woman. And that's yeah. how they were sucked yeah. in. Uh, and that's the civil rights movement. Exactly. You know, so I, I just wanted to, to, um, to put that out to you, to have you sort of comment on that in within your analysis. Yeah. Uh, uh, for, first of all, uh, if you're interested in the connection, uh, the crucial figure between communism and what happened in the cities and the civil rights movement, the crucial figure is Louis Wirth, the sociologist from the University of Chicago. That's W-I-R-T-H. I cover this in my book. I read uh, his archives at the University of Chicago. He was a communist, a, a Jew from uh, Germany who married a Baptist uh, and uh, hated Catholics. Uh, but during the 1930, uh, 1930s, late 1930s, 1940s, he was aware of what was going on with the nationalities question in the Soviet Union which is basically you allow these people some type of independence, but then when war breaks out, you engage in a policy of ethnic cleansing. So the first group to be ethnically cleansed was the Kalmyks. Uh, my my daughter-in-law's grandmother was Volga Deutsch, and she ended up in Siberia because of ethnic cleansing. Louis Wirth had this in mind as the pattern for what was going to happen in Chicago. That's what was going on there at that time. This was the direct influence of the Communist Party on social engineering in the United States of, uh, of America. Okay, yeah, that will... So now, you know, this triple melting pot theory, um, I'm intrigued by it. It's, it's only when you brought it up is the first time I, I heard about it. Um, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and But to me, it sounds like that's describing the North um, because you, you also had a great quote about, I can't remember who it was, but somebody who accompanied Dr. King when they yeah, went up to Chicago. Dorothy Tillman. Right, and where she said, that, everything in the down South, South. Down South, you was either black or white. You wasn't right. none of this Polish or Irish or none of that. That's right. Because now, and down South, now there's an amazing article about the creation of a black ethnicity in Jamaica. This was in. Um, uh, uh, Garvey studies book. Um, I, 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 know, I know the author and so forth. He taught me, in fact, in Jamaica. And um, he, he talked about how in the slave rebellions, uh, the ethnic identities from Africa still existed, that many of the early slave rebellions in Jamaica in the 16th, 17th century were led by Twi or Congo or As Asante or whatever. And they sought their own freedom but not necessarily of their enemy tribe yes. from Africa. Yes, this is a crucial distinction. Yeah. Ethnicity is a category of nature. Race is a category of the mind. This yeah. is a crucial distinction that you have to understand. Yeah. Okay, if you go to Africa, it is the best example of ethnicity that I can give you. Mm -hmm. You have uh, Tanzania. I was in Tanzania. 76 different ethnic groups in Tanzania. Okay, they have all lived peacefully together, largely because Julius Nyerere was a Catholic and did not promote his own ethnic group uh, to the disadvantage of others. You go to Kenya, you've got the same situation, but that's a slightly different situation because the Kikuyu were the dominant ethnic group in, in Kenya, and uh, Jomo Kenyatta was a Kikuyu, and he never stopped being a Kikuyu chief. 
you know, and and it was different because it was a colony, and you so you had violence in 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 uh, in Kenya. But this is the the fundamental truth is that you are what you are because of the language you speak, which you learn from your mother. That is your identity. You do not become black until you're confronted with a white person. You yeah. do not become white until you're confronted with a black person. Yeah. So if I were to say, go to a room in the United States and I'd say, hey, Mazungu, uh, nobody would turn around. Yeah. Am I a Mazungu? Yeah. Well, I am when I get to East Africa. Exactly. And if I'm in East Africa and someone says Mazungu, I turn around. Yeah. But that's only in East Africa. That's not who I am. That's mm -hmm. what I am there because I'm surrounded by a sea full of black people and they have a, a name for it. I, this, I'll tell you, is, go ahead. I'll tell you an interesting thing about in, in that article about the development of the black ethnicity. It wasn't, it, in, in fact, he wasn't, it's Don Rebotham, uh, interestingly, who is uh, probably of, of Jewish descent in Jamaica and, and was a communist in Jamaica, by the way. But, um, but he talked about um, how it wasn't necessarily the confrontation between black and white because that was still done ethnically. Uh, what it was was Christianity, and that Christianity, and in particular Quakerism and 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 all the evangelical born again types, where you know blacks were considered equal and they could have been preachers. So the Baptists were extremely important in that, um, and so that all of a sudden, uh, within the idea of of Christ of Christianity. Um, you, you left behind your Twi identity or your Congo identity or your Asante or whatever it might be. And um, you became black. And, and the thing that held the black identity together was Christianity. Um, you know, so, so there was a positive content in, in what he saw. He didn't see it just as a negative thing, just to, to put that out to you. Well, there is a, look, this happened in Europe. Uh, I, I've said before that my, you know, to my Iranian friends, I mean, uh, the Iranians were uh, philosophers and astronomers when my ancestors were chasing pigs through the forest of Germany. So mm -hmm. I get the white boys get upset with me when I say the only difference between Tanzania, uh, the Diocese of Würzburg and the Diocese of Mbinga is 1500 years of Catholicism. That's what created Europe. Okay. Now, Europe when they, you do not get your language from Christianity. Mm -hmm. You have your language from your mother. That yeah. is your ethnic group. That is the basis of your ethnic group. Christianity would never presume to supplant your ethnic group. You didn't, you didn't learn a language from Christianity. There was a lingua franca called Latin, but that was not what, that's not what you spoke to your mother. And I'm saying ethnicity is part of nature. Okay. Yeah. And I'm saying it is also the hidden grammar of black-white uh, uh, conflict in America. I've already yeah. talked about the white side. I had a friend uh, in Chicago. She, uh, she came up from the Great Migration out of Mississippi to Chicago in the 1950s. They, when you talk to those black people, they talk about Mississippi the way my people talk about Ireland and Germany. Yeah. That, that's the old country for that's these right. people. So this woman's mother, so they're Protestants. They're yeah. all Protestants. Uh, they come up to Chicago. They bring their religion up there with them. Her mother converted to Catholicism. Her mother died. I get the call, and the call is, uh, my mother died. Uh, I, I, we want you to come to the funeral. I said, of course I'll come to the funeral. Where is it? Well, it's at the Pearly Gates Funeral Home. I said, Pearly Gates Funeral Home? Why isn't it at St. Sabina's? She's yeah. a Catholic. Well, because you don't arrange your own funeral. Your children arrange it. So I go to the Pearly Gates funeral home, and there's the black minister, and he's talking about Mississippi and how yeah. we came from Mississippi. And, and, we, and then suddenly uh, uh, the, the Polish priest shows up, and nobody knows what to do because this woman had basically changed her ethnicity. Yeah. Because she went from Protestant to Catholic, and everybody in that room knew that. Everybody yeah. understood that this was a fundamental change. But because of this legacy of using race as the basis for social engineering, nobody can acknowledge it. Exactly. That exactly. is the whole point here. Yeah. That, that, and, you know, I, I make that point about Obama. Uh, when people feel 
that they have righted some historical wrong because uh, an African American, you know, who's half, but but an African American has occupied uh, the White House. I, I say, but an, a descendant of an American slave has yet to do that. So I mean, that's because you're fixated on race when it's about history, you know. So so you have not ticked off that box if you think you have, you know, the that and, whole. And- history of, of, of the former slaves uh, right. has not been addressed by Obama, right? Obama is something no. else. Yeah. No. And why, why is race the preferred category of the oligarch? Because it's an empty concept. It's that's because right. it's an empty concept, and they get to determine what it means. Exactly. Whereas if, and, if, it's, the, if it's Catholicism... Well, the Pope gets to determine what that means, and you're kind of left out of the equation. If it's being Polish, well, then the language determines. But if it's race, then the oligarchs get to determine the meaning of that, and they can create their their structure around it. Exactly, because I, I, I want to explore that very issue more. Because uh, I think we're witnessing right now the creation of a brown race. And of course, that sort of impacts me, because I would be part of this brown race, which I think is ridiculous. Right. Um, uh, so first, it kind of meant Latinos at one point. Then it kind of meant, uh, uh, well, in, in the Caribbean, brown has this uh, this implication of mixed people between black and white. And then uh, there was another. Yeah, I guess mixed people in the states were sometimes called brown. But now I'm noticing that the use of the term brown mean. Oh yeah, sometimes it means Indian in the uh, uh, like Hindu, uh, you know, uh, South Asian descent in in America. But I, I realize it's being used as this kind of conglomeration where you could be Mexican, Iranian, Arab, and just brown. It's just brown. It, it robs you of any identity whatsoever. Absolutely. And you just become a consumer. That's Absolutely. all. That's exactly the point of it. If we put all these people together, that's a lot of people. And yeah. then suddenly you run to the head of the parade and say, well, I speak for this group of people. Well, this is ridiculous. You don't speak for this group of people. What? There is no unity to this group of people. There's exactly. nothing there. The only so unity what, what is... Language, what language do you speak? Where do you come from? What That's is your right. religion? These are all concrete, objective realities that get erased as soon as you use the word brown, white, or black. Exactly, exactly. I, I would say, where's Brownistan? Where's Brownland? What is the history of brown? Say a few <laughs> words in brown. <laughs> exactly. It, 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 but, but that is an ongoing project right now that fits in, you know, really to, to what you're saying there. So now, you know, so, so that brings us to the question of the oligarchs, which you, you talk about quite a lot. I, I, I've seen, I've heard you, you know, say the oligarchs are basically Jews, homosexuals, and I'm, I can't remember if you added CEOs. another category. I'm sorry? Jews, homosexuals, and CEOs are the one percent, right? Co- exactly the, the the corporate. Now, I want to ask you about the place of the oligarchy in American history. When do you think the oligarchs assumed control? Was it from the founding itself? Because Absolutely. the American flag is the East India Company flag. That's one which I, I'm just intrigued by. I have to find out more about that. Is it something that occurred later in the 20th no, century? From the the very beginning. The very beginning, the conflict at that point was known as the conflict between debtors and creditors. Okay, there are always going to be more debtors than creditors in a society. The creditors in the United States were located in cities for the most part, and they could get together much more easily than the debtors could. The debtors were out. uh, If if you're talking about uh, um, Pennsylvania, the creditors were in Philadelphia and the debtors were living out in Western Pennsylvania trying to grow grain, make whiskey and stuff like that. They could not get together for these conventions that created the United States of America. The debtors could. And so the United States was created in the interest of the, the creditor class. They wanted certain things. They wanted uh, gold as the currency as opposed to uh, paper money. The, the people wanted paper money. They wanted easy credit. The crisis came almost immediately when the creditor class, after the Americans defeated the British militarily, uh, the creditors bought up war bonds for pennies on the dollar from widows who needed the money. 
And then they immediately went to Congress and convinced Congress to make them whole at full face value in gold. Now, this was an outrage. Okay, the bonds were there for the benefit of those widows. They were cheated out of their money. And then the 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 creditors rewarded themselves. And this created a rebellion immediately. It was Shay's rebellion. Pardon me. What year was that? This was right after. When was Shay's rebellion? I don't have it at the tip of my right, tongue. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But I'm talking about the 17, the 1790s. I'm saying right. this is immediately after yeah. the Constitution is created. That Constitution was created to give the illusion of popular sovereignty and the reality of oligarchic control. The oligarchic control was ensured by the Supreme Court, which has been the interest of oligarchic interest from Marbury versus Madison all the way up to Obergefell, which was the homosexual marriage uh, uh, decision. That, that decision, homosexual marriage, abortion, I could go down the list, the, the American people never voted for these things. They have always been imposed on them by the United States, by the United States Supreme Court, because that is the instrument of oligarchic control, the fundamental instrument of oligarchic control from the beginning. Oh, well, you know, well, that's I I didn't know that that's how you located. That's fascinating because, I mean, in that a is sense, in my and, book. That is in my book, Baron Metal. The full details okay. are in my book, Baron Metal. Baron. OK, Baron Metal, because um. In a, so, so would you say that your project, in a sense, is um, against the American Republic? Would you put no. it that way? No, no. it's I'm I'm hoping to restore the American Republic. My project is against the American Empire. Right. Now, I'm saying, even given all of that oligarchic control from the beginning, you bring large numbers of people into the United States of America from these various European uh, religious traditions, and you have de facto a kind of representative democracy. Right. But it's only the only group that has power. The individual has no political power. The group has power. And right. if you destroy the group, you're destroying political power. Well, the group that these people had, they were Irish, they were German, they were Poles, they lived in neighborhoods that could, because they occupied that territory, they could send their own representatives to the Congress, both the state Congress and the National Congress. That was the basis for the Republic. That was a, 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 a close approximation of representative democracy in the United States of America. And it was destroyed by social engineering after World War II. And the vehicle was race. You know, because I, I have a, I'm, so I, I've developed a different understanding, a different heterodox understanding. And I'd like to, to hear your opinion of it to, to, um, to see if it fits into what you say or, or, or you totally reject it. But I, I came to a conclusion that the American Revolution of 1776, etc., it was essentially a continuation of the English Civil War. And that it was like the, so the, the Puritans and the Calvinists and all the Calvinist republics that were being established in, the, in Europe, it kind of got its, its full efflorescence in the United States. And, and and so, you know, so America is essentially a Protestant nation. And that's why they're so hostile to Catholics. And, you know, and the great and, you know, the greatest Protestant festival, because they're not known for festivals, but the greatest one is Thanksgiving. And, um, you know, which is the family festival. And, you know, they hate festivals because it's Catholic, pagan, blah, blah, blah in, in their in their theology. And uh, but so I've seen America as this kind of Protestant thing and then usurped by um, the imperialists from the British Empire, the, the global financiers and the people who organize the sugar and slave and cotton and blah, blah and that. Does that how, how does that fit into to your uh, theory? Do you, do you reject that? No, it fits, in, it fits in perfectly with what I'm saying. Right. I'm saying that when you look back at these oligarchs at the time of World War II, there was a WASP ruling class in America, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. That was, and the Jews were part of an alliance with them, but they were definitely junior partners in this alliance. So Louis Worth was working for the Rockefellers or the Ford Foundation. Right. And these were the people that basically, they weren't Protestant in any real sense of the term, 
I mean, John D. Rockefeller was a Northern Baptist, whatever that means. But uh, if you go to the Rockefeller Center, what's the statue there? It's Prometheus. The Rockefellers were Prometheans, but they had this ethnic identification with Protestant culture known as wasp culture, and they saw the battle as religious. It it, it was a battle between Protestants and Catholics Mm -hmm. because the Catholics at this point in time uh, were having more children. This was what Rockefeller was interested in. He was interested in birth control. John D. Rockefeller III was interested in birth control because Catholics did not use contraception. And that was one of the biggest battles after World War II. It was a demographic battle because demography is the basis of political power. And the culmination of Catholic political power was the election of John F. Kennedy to the presidency. That was the Catholics. That was the baby boom. The Catholics had finally come into their own politically, and guess what happened? He got murdered. Yeah, yeah. Now, maybe you think it was a lone deranged gunman, but (laughs) you're laughing. I don't know why you're laughing. No, I'm laughing because you put a lot of things together that I I didn't think about. So it's like a a smile of of enlightenment, kind of, you know, Um, the baby boom. I, I didn't think of it in that in those terms. And, and the baby yeah, boom was Catholic. Yeah, yeah. Because Catholics did not use contraceptives. Yeah, I, 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 I never put those two things together, but that's absolutely right. And certainly in England and the whole thing with the Irish and is, is very similar. Yeah, and um, no, the, 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 this is uh, quite quite uh, enlightening. Um, and. I, I'm just writing down some notes here for, from the from things I want to raise. Like so, so what I'm I'm understanding from what you're saying then is in the blacks being Protestants, um, but but low and not like Luther, Lutheran, but like, you know ma- the mass kind of born again. But they were sort of the Protestant bulwark into the, uh, breaking up the Catholic uh, proxy warriors. They were proxy warriors, just like the Mujahideen in the 70s, just like the homosexuals now. They were proxy warriors. And they were the ones that basically were brought into the big cities to break up Catholic neighborhoods. Wow, wow. The big big confrontation came when Martin Luther King went to Chicago. There was no segregation in Chicago. Right. It was ethnic neighborhoods. That's that quote that I gave you from Dorothy. Yeah. Tillman. They were completely bewildered when they got to Chicago. Yeah. So the, the big confrontation came in Marquette Park in 1966, uh, where the people of Marquette Park were throwing rocks at uh, the, the. So it's when the confrontation takes place, it's black people on one side of the street and it's white people on the other side of the street. But when you look into it, it's Protestants from the South being paid by Nelson Rockefeller to come up to the North to bust up what was a Catholic neighborhood. They were Lithuanians. If you ask them who they are, they would not say that they were white unless they were throwing rocks at Martin Luther King. If you got into their homes, their grandparents spoke Lithuanian. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting story here because I met, uh, I talked about this to a man, uh, man uh, cop in Chicago who was the Lithuanian. Yeah. And he told me, I said, I went on an interview and I said, the Lithuanians had the ro- a right to defend themselves and defend their neighborhood. Well, this got people down denouncing me as a racist and so on and so forth. It turns out that uh, there was a, a black member of Opus Dei who sided with the Lithuanians because he was Catholic. Yeah. I said to, I have a, a friend who's a, a nun uh, from Kenya. I said to her, which side of the street would you stand on? She's a Luya. I was at her little village in, in Kenya. She said, without hesitation, I would have si- stood on the Catholic side of the street yeah. because that's her identity. It's not, doesn't come from the color of her skin. It comes from what she believes, what she, what she speaks and where she comes from. Well, in, in, in Trinidad, we, we have this because um, it was Spanish and then the French came uh, after the French Revolution. Then the British took over. And then, and then so we, we had a lot of uh, people coming in from the British islands later. But you have the Grenadians who are Catholic and so forth. So, so among the black population in Trinidad, there, there's a divide between the Catholics and the Protestants. You have the Anglicans who are the, 
the sort of elite ones and then you have all the like low church and um so yeah so so i'm familiar with, like throughout history there has been that division here as well i'm wondering now that you're saying this um i've never thought about transposing this to studying america but where do you see the Haitians? Because Haitians are, are, you know, where do you see the Haitians in that whole uh, conglomeration there? Do, do you, have you thought about that at all? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're Catholic. There's a, a, a man, uh, his, his first name was Toussaint. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't Toussaint Louverture, yeah. but he was a Haitian, a Catholic Haitian who came to New York after the revolution in in haiti mm -hmm. and he became a hairdresser uh to white people and now they're they're trying to get him uh canonized this was oh. this was this was yeah the, it, it's i wish what was his name what was his full name anyway it's two saint it's yeah. the same as same as the revolutionary yeah the exact yeah. opposite he's the exact opposite of the revolutionary because does does the color of your skin tell you how to act no, yeah, exactly. no. You, so what you had basically was one man who was a devotee of the French Revolution, who hated the Catholic Church, and another man who was a faithful Catholic, a loyal Catholic, uh, both in the same island, and it gets uh, torn apart by revolution. And this man goes to uh, New York, and he fits in perfectly with the uh, ruling class elite there, uh, because his Catholicism allows this type of thing. If you have a religion that tells you how to act, you don't need uh, race as your, as your identity. If yeah. you have race as your identity, you're going to have conflict. That's right. Because That's right. you can't change that. And I'm mm -hmm. saying that the, the oligarchs know this. They are promoting white boys now. Yeah. Uh, Charlottesville is a classic example of what I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. Today, there's something like gun, a gun rights rally being held today right. too, right? But 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 Charlottesville. Okay, this is this is the white boy rally. Okay, now who is the leader? Who is the pope of white boys? Well, they don't have one. Yeah. So who gets to be appointed leader? Well, it's Richard Spencer. Who's Richard Spencer? Nobody ever heard of him before Charlottesville. How did he become the leader of this group? Well, because ABC, NBC, and CBS put the microphone in front of his face, and they made him their leader, the leader I, I, of the I, white boys. I want to interject here. This is exactly the argument made by Malcolm X about Martin Luther King, about the, the civil rights leaders. He says, where did these black leaders come from? Where is their following? Where, you know, these people are just put up by TV and they become national leaders. It's amazing. This exact, exact same process we're seeing over and over again. And I don't know if Alexandria Cort uh, Cortez is being the going to be the queen of brown people or something. But uh, but yeah, what but you're saying both black and white. We have the same situation. It's a completely empty category. It has no meaning. It has no content. And so, therefore, the oligarchs can get a, appoint the leaders in their interest. So what, what, why was that in their interest? Well, Richard Spencer brings these white boys together. He fires them all up. He hands them spears. And then he says, charge the machine gun nest. And they all got mowed down. Well, that's exactly what the oligarchs wanted to happen. Now, was this Richard Spencer's intention? Well, ask Richard Spencer. I think it probably wasn't his intention. Yeah. But he's a kind of narcissistic uh, uh, a guy who immediately uh, uh, loved this position of leadership and be betrayed, whether either willingly, I don't think it was will intentionally, yeah. but he did betray the interest of those people by, by riling them up and getting them into a conflict that they were d destined to lose. You know, I, I, I'm, you know, you talk about the Jewish black Alliance in the civil rights, but from your own analysis, and, and, and bring it all together with your other things, too. I think it's probably more accurate to talk about the Jewish-Protestant alliance. Um, because throughout history, I, from my reading of history, from, from Europe to the Americas, that has been the crucial alliance um, well, you know, in allowing usury, um, in sort of bringing empire together. It's kind of like the Protestants were like the muscle for Well, for, who were the Protestants? Who were the Protestants that founded uh, uh, America? Well, I mean, in the northern, in Massachusetts, they were Puritans. 
What were Puritans? They were Judaizers. Yeah. They were people, basically, the fundamental issue here is when you abandon the Catholic Church, okay, what is the principle of unity now? Well, you don't have one. So they, they look into the Old Testament. Yeah. And they see these Old Testament models as the paradigm that organizes their behavior. If you read John Milton's treatise on divorce, it's a classic example of Puritanism as Judaizing. Milton's sure. wife left him. He wanted to marry another woman. Jesus Christ said, you can't divorce and remarry your wife. So what did Milton do? He said, well, who cares what Jesus Christ said? Moses allowed it. And right. so you've got this idea of this carnal religion. It's carnal religion where basically you're going to have lots of goats and lots of sheep and lots of wives and this kind of material prosperity because you've abandoned the Catholic faith, which was the, the religion that Christianity was founded by Jesus Christ, because it didn't let you do what you wanted to do. So you've created this empty category once again, and you filled it with your own meaning. And that's why I, I, the Protestant church, I mean, it fits in perfectly. I mean, it just splits off infinitesimally. It, it's, it's always making new sex. There's always something new coming out of it. What, so what is the principle? Well, yeah, what is the principle of unity in the Catholic Church? And what, what is it? The principle of unity is Jesus Christ. Jesus but, Christ founded the, the Catholic Church. Say they have that too? Did Jesus, okay, let's go back to Martin Luther, the beginning yeah. of this thing. Okay, this is not a question that I'm asking. The Germans at the time asked him, well, wh what about the last 1,500 years? Was that a mistake? Did Jesus Christ found, are, are you saying you, who founded this church? It sounds to me as if you're founding it. Well, what about, what happened during those last 1,500 years? You have an apostolic church. An apostolic church means that this is handed on from generation to generation. So Jesus Christ said to Peter, it's, you go to Rome, look at the inside of the dome at St. Peter's, tu es Petras et supra hunc Petram edificabo ecclesiam meam. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. That is Jesus Christ handing it to Peter, Peter handing it to the next pope, all the way up to the, to the present pope. Where did Luther get this commission? Well, he didn't get it. There is no, there is a gap here. So then, well, we have to have another organizing principle. So it's sola scriptura. Right. Okay, well, wait a minute. Where do you find that in the Bible? Oh, wait a minute. It's not in the Bible. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. Who created the Bible then? Well, wait, it was the Catholic Church, wasn't it? So it's completely foundationless. Right. It is pure will. Right. And th right. so there's a direct line from Luther to Nietzsche. Yeah. in German history. And this is the problem with Protestantism. Protestantism was a looting operation. Right. That's all it was in England. There is no theological justification whatsoever in England. It was pure theft. This is not a firm foundation for a religion. Now, they had a coherent culture, so it had a 500-year run, and it's over now. And so what you're seeing in places like England after the evaporation of Protestantism, you have, on the one hand, large groups of people converting to Islam on the one hand and large groups of Englishmen identifying as white because they don't have any other identity. That's the crisis right now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, two things uh, before we go, because I know we, uh, we're coming in close to the end, but the segregation thing we were talking about and, and your defense of, of segregation, if you want to put it in that way, that's such a negative loaded term. That's why I'm putting it in quotation marks. But Certainly many, many black um, activists and, uh, you, know, um, you know, social thinkers have seen the decline of black neighborhoods as, you know, as being tre tremendously destructive to black people, individually and collectively. So, you know, and, and, uh, and certainly the, the civil rights movement was, was part of that. It was destroying, in a sense, the black nation that was historically existing in the black belt. Uh, with all the migration, um, and then destroying the Catholic uh, neighborhoods that you're talking about in the north. And now, I, I, get, I suppose as a final shot, I'm just trying to tie this American dynamic into the American empire. Because um, I do think, I really do think this exporting of the race concept of the black, white, and I suppose now brown 
Um, it, it is about the sort of removing of the identities of people around the world and then creating this pure, historyless, um, materialist consumer that has no history, no past, nothing spiritual about it. It only wants to see the next Marvel movie or the next iPhone or whatever. Can you expand That's exactly, that? you're absolutely right. That's exactly what's going on in Europe right now. You have a, an assault on European culture that is largely race-based. Okay, the race, uh, we're talking about immigrants from Africa, immigrants, the, the wars that the United States has created throughout the Middle East and Africa have created huge numbers of migrants. And these migrants are now the proxy warriors that are going to destroy Europe. Okay, Libya is a, a jumping off point now for large numbers of African uh, migrants. These people will come in no country. This, what, this happened in the United States of America in cities like Philadelphia during the 1950s and 1960s. This mobilization of migration, this weaponization of migration is now taking place again in Europe. And no one seems to have learned the lessons that we learned in America or should have learned in America. This is what this has nothing to do with individuals. This is large groups of people. The, the Romans had a, 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 an op, a, 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 a group, a, a process of assimilation called receptio. You could become a Roman citizen simply by learning the language and adopting Roman culture. If you were a Goth, you would be immediately sent to Syria. If you were Syrian, you would be sent to the Danube. Because uh, they, you would be an isolated individual and you had to adopt the culture. If you let the entire Gothic nation cross the Danube, that's the end of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire fell within 70 years after that happened. Mm -hmm. This is the type of weaponization of migration that is occurring in Europe right now. And there are only few people, only the Eastern Europeans seem to be aware of this. Everybody's aware of it, but they're more effective in dealing with it. the rise. You know, of the I, I, I want to add something there because that's fascinating what you say about the Romans, because um, I've, I've come across that in terms of the differences between English colonialism or British colonialism and French, because a black man could be a French man once he imbibed the culture and could speak and write and, and he became French and could be buried in the pantheon. In, in Paris, where that could never happen in, in the British. And maybe that's the connection between France, Catholicism, Rome. I don't know, it, 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 but it sounds well, fascinating. It had to be, because as soon as you had Protestantism, you had state religions. And as soon as you have a state religion, well, everybody is white, if you want to look at it that way, because everybody in your church is, is English, and there's nobody else. The Catholics could never accept that. The Catholics always believed that the entire world was going to become Catholic at some point, convert to Jesus Christ. And it had already established the fact that there were all of the nations in Europe were allowed to retain their own cultural identity, their languages, and still be a part of the universal church. That all stopped with the Reformation. And the Reformation was in that regard, in places like England, the beginning of this racial, uh, racial thinking. Wow. So if, if we want to now, I guess, tie everything together and bring it back to Martin Luther King and his legacy, how, what, how, how would you put King within this large context that, that we've, we've placed him in? How, how do you summarize it? You know, uh, he there in South Bend, Indiana, there's a statue in the center of town and it's Martin Luther King and Father Hesburgh. They're arm in arm. 1966, Hesburgh went up to uh, a rally at Soldiers Field and he sang, We Shall Overcome. And this became an iconic photo and now it's a statue. We need to understand what was really going on there. Okay, what was Father Hesburgh doing? He was betraying the Catholic people of Chicago. He was betraying the Catholics who were fighting for their own identity in Marquette Park, those Lithuanian Catholics. Once we understand that, we understand how this regime of social engineering was imposed on us. And because we are the empire that rules the world, it's now going to be imposed on the rest of the world. It's being imposed on Europe right now. We have to wake up to it because consciousness is the beginning of change. It's not change, but it's the beginning of change. And that's what we need to talk about right now. And that's why I'm glad we had this discussion. Yeah, yeah. I mean... 
I could go on for hours and hours, but I think we've we've come to a nice close of of this aspect, and and hopefully we can continue it on on other aspects later. But I I really want to thank you not only for this interview, but you know for all your work you've you've done and the, all the interviews you do all the time and the enlightenment. I mean, you have incredible energy, insight, intelligence, you know, and what you're doing is so important. So I wish you all the best and every success in your work ahead. Thanks Thank for you. leading the way. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Kirk. Well, that's all for Independent Thought and Freedom this week. Please join us again next week. And in the meanwhile, make sure you subscribe, leave me a rating, like and share this podcast with your friends. Thanks and bye for now.